Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to the Giant Splash. I'm John Shea of the San Francisco Chronicle and my special guest is Bill Gould. This is part two of our conversation with the baseball historian and law expert and professor emeritus at Stanford. And we're discussing African-American players in the majors and why the numbers have dropped and what could be done, the antitrust exemption in baseball, and make sure you stick around for the remarkable story of Bill's great-grandfather, William B. Gould I, born in 1837, an American hero on so many fronts, a man who escaped from slavery, fought in the Civil War, and kept a diary that Bill made into a fascinating book. We have African-Americans making up just 8% of baseball rosters while, while it was far greater in the 70s and 80s and beyond, but do you see baseball taking the right steps, and or, or are there steps baseball needs to take? How, how do you see that? Well, uh, I think there are a number of steps that baseball could take. Uh, uh, one of the one of the things, there are a number of reasons uh, uh, for this. I mean, the you, you know the teams say, and I I remember when when I first went when I went to the NLRB in 1994. I was still young enough, you know, I still caught fly balls with my students here at Stanford, and I and I would get into the batting cage in those days. Well, I discovered in Washington there was no batting cage. And, uh, you know, I had to go into the suburbs to uh, to find a uh, to batting cage. So, I mean, that uh, that's, you know, one of a number of obstacles. Another is that we've begun to recruit players uh, more from the uh, colleges, but there are no full ba- scholarships uh, for baseball in the co- in the colleges. And why is that? Well, that's because uh, football and basketball produce the great revenues for the colleges. We're beginning to learn more about this, and as we begin to focus upon uh, the fact that the players have been frozen out of these revenues, uh, and that. Uh, you know that's being challenged. Uh, I think uh, properly by uh, antitrust actions and uh, other uh, uh, initiatives. But most of the good uh, African American athletes uh, are going into football and basketball, and 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 one of the reasons is that uh, uh, that that's really where the scholarship uh, is, and and. Uh, we still are in an unequal, as we can see every day, in an unequal society where uh, uh, blacks have less resources than whites. So blacks, are, uh, by necessity, uh, you know, obviously want to go where they can get a scholarship. Uh, well, we don't have uh, black players in baseball, in part because nobody, nobody can get a scholarship in baseball, and, and the reason for that is no revenues. 
um, in uh, in uh, college. So I mean, these are there are many factors involved in this. I don't think baseball has done enough about it, and uh, one of the reasons I'd like to see uh, uh, Dusty to, Dusty to continue to play a leadership role in uh, baseball is that I think he. Uh, and others uh, of, of a similar point of view and experience can kind of hold baseball's feet to the fire on this and, uh, and uh, increase the participation that we have at the professional level. Yeah, pretty easy choice for Kyler Murray, who was drafted in the NFL and Major League Baseball. It's you could be our quarterback now for big money or you could ride buses for three or four years and maybe make, make it to the majors where you're going to have to wait six more years before you make big money as a free agent. Yes. But, uh, yeah, the, you mentioned the antitrust exemption. What? Why do owners have this, and how how, how has it affected the lay of the land? And could, could they ever lose it? I mean, is it here to stay? Well, it, it, uh, we can never say never, uh, but uh, it, it, it certainly, uh, you know, we're coming up to the... Uh, 100th anniversary of uh, the antitrust exemption. It stems in, in baseball. It stems from uh, Justice Holmes' uh, opinion in federal baseball in uh, 1922, uh, when uh, the Supreme Court held that uh, baseball is not a uh, an industry uh, in interstate commerce within the meaning of antitrust law. Uh, well. Uh, you know, uh, again, I kind of go back to my time as a kid um, uh, in the 40s. I remember in 1949, we suddenly began to see all these players whose, whose names we didn't know. Um, uh, these were the guys who had gone to the Mexican League uh, and uh, baseball banned them for life. Well, they sued and uh, baseball used... Uh, the antitrust defense and said, you know, we're, we're exempt from, uh, any, uh, you know, normally if, uh, uh, a bunch of employees together and they say, I'm not going to, I'm going to boycott this guy. That's a restraint in violation of the antitrust laws. Uh, but baseball by virtue of this 1922 decision tried to defend themselves against the Mexican league players. They thought they were going to lose. And that's why they settled with the Mexican League players. That's why they all come back in 1949. But uh, uh, nobody really challenged this until Kurt Flood, mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, and uh, he went to uh, he lost uh, before the Supreme Court in 1972 when uh, the Supreme Court seemed to say, "Well, maybe we would have decided it differently. Maybe we would have held that where teams get together and they." reserve one player to one team and the other team refuses to deal with them, that that's an antitrust uh, violation. But we have a doctrine called stare decisis that we will abide by previous, previously decided authority. And uh, the Supreme Court said that this, said the Supreme Court in 1972, a half a century earlier, so uh, we're going to let Congress uh deal with this. Well, Congress ultimately, um, uh, through the Kurt Flood Act of 1998, did partially reverse uh, the 1922 federal baseball decision. Uh, 
but it, it's of little consequence uh, because um, uh, the uh, uh, courts have said that uh, the players can only use uh, antitrust litigation against uh, the reserve clause or some other restriction on their mobility where there is no collective bargaining, where the union disappears or is likely to disappear. And so um, uh, we've had, uh, uh, that's why uh, unions in sports like football and basketball have uh, dissolved themselves. Uh, you know, we know that they're going to reappear once they, the fight is over and because they can't sue in uh, antitrust unless collective bargaining is off the table. Uh, so the reversal of federal baseball in 1992 by the Kerr Act of 1998 is of uh, a limited, uh, limited value. Every time uh, the public, this might be one of them, those instances, gets mad with uh, uh, the leaders of baseball, uh, the senators, uh, United States senators, not the Washington senators, <laughs> get, get, get uh, angry with baseball. They threaten, they say, oh, we're going to take your antitrust exemption away. Yeah. But they never seem to do it. They never, you know, once the, the particular dispute that they have that's bothering them is, gets resolved, then uh, they, they, uh, they always back off. Baseball always says uh, uh, they're different from other sports. They, they really need the antitrust exemption um, uh, because, uh, you know, the, uh, they have the uh, farm teams and the other, uh, other sports don't have as much of a farm system as uh, baseball does, although baseball seems to be giving up a good deal of that right now by uh, expressing a desire anyway to eliminate a lot of the minor league franchises that exist. Yeah, it's why I used to vote for Kurt Flood for the Hall of Fame every year. He was eligible for all the reasons you mentioned there. But, you know, one of yeah. the, one of your labor law classes, you co-taught one time with Leonard Toppett, the late great journalist, author, newspaper man. And, and one day, uh, didn't you have a guest speaker named Willie Mays? Yes, yes. Well, well Leonard, uh, the connection with Willie Mays. I've, I've not come to know Willie Mays uh, except saying hello now and then uh, at all. But Leonard had the real connection with Willie Mays. And he said, we've got to get Willie Mays into the seminar. And I said, terrific, great. Do you think you can do it? And he did it. He was, Leonard was so proud. And, and, uh, and uh, he came to, you know, the, the word <laughs> was like electricity. Hmm. The, word, you know, the word just went through the law school. Uh, and kids were, uh, a lot of kids who weren't even in the seminar were kind of standing around seeing if they could get a glimpse of him. And uh, we had a wonderful time uh, with Willie. Uh, uh, we, uh, uh, I can remember it so vividly. And uh, one of the things I remember about that was that uh, Willie came into my office and he saw that I had a, uh, a Bobby Bonds uh, glove that I had since 1974 that I used to use uh, when I shagged fly bulls with my students. And he said, he said, look at that glove. He said, that 
Clovis, well, Tom, that's no good. He said, I'll get you a real glove. And he did. He got me, he got me uh, one of, you know, uh, uh, one of these design gloves with his signature on it. It was so nice that I was afraid to use it. I've never used it. <laughs> it was, it was it's just such a beautiful glove, you know, such a treasure. And, uh, and that's one of the things I remember about this that day. And he, uh, he uh, interacted with our students very well. And uh, we had a, we had a big time with him. We'll be back with more of Bill Gould right after this. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Bill, you come from a legendary family. You're William B. Gold the Fourth. Could, could you tell us about the American hero, your your great-grandfather, William B. Gould I, a veteran of the Civil War. He was a leader, a strong guy, uh, respected, wonderful American. And you edited his diary and turned it into a book called Diary of a Contraband, the Civil War Passage of a Black Sailor, which provides us amazing literature on the history of race in this country in, in the Civil War, but who was uh, William B. Gould the first? Well, William B. Gould was uh, born in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina uh, in um, 1837. Um, uh, he, uh, for a long time, uh, uh, I, I know who his mother was, uh, do not know, and sort of an ongoing uh, uh, search. Uh, I don't know, do not know who his father was. Um, the, um, he was born in 1837. He was a, uh, he was a, uh, uh, a skilled tradesman. He learned, he was, a, a sl for a long time, didn't know whether he was slave or free. And, um, uh, but, but I then discovered, discovered, uh, Initially, by looking at the uh, archives uh, in Washington, the National Archives, that uh, uh, his uh, uh, ship that he boarded when he escaped from slavery uh, uh, referenced uh, his owner, who his owner was. And uh, they called them contraband because uh, uh, they were viewed as seized property. Uh, at that time, the Supreme Court and the Dred Scott decision held that blacks were not uh, human beings entitled, entitled to the protection of the Constitution and uh, were rather uh, property. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the sort of get-around Dred Scott, uh, the North uh, began to refer to uh, escaping blacks who wanted to join uh, the American side of the war, the United States side, uh, as 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 contraband, and uh, he uh, learned the um, uh, skill of uh, plastering uh, in North Carolina as a slave. Uh, uh, 
I, um, uh, one of my first visits down to Wilmington, North Carolina, where he was born, uh, I was admiring uh, the uh, plaster and work, the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the beauty of this antebellum management mansion. And uh, shortly after that, the curator of the mansion uh, found uh, in the slave quarters uh, a number of uh, pieces of plaster, and one of them has, in initials quite similar to the way it appears in the diary, WBG, William Benjamin, William Benjamin Gould. So we know that uh, we, we, we feel reasonably confident that he built uh, that particular uh, mansion. He uh, escaped in the, in 1862, uh, joined the Navy, and uh, fought for the United States Navy, uh, both uh, uh, as part of the blockade, where they were trying to disrupt the attempt of uh, uh, the Southerners to supply Lee's army in Virginia uh, with uh, both food and material, bringing it in through uh, the southeastern states. He was part of the blockade. And then in 1864 and 1865, he uh, went to Europe uh, in search of uh, uh, the uh, rebel ships that were being built uh, in Britain and France uh, to come to the aid of the Confederacy. And at the end of the war, in 1865, uh, he returns to uh, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, to Boston, Massachusetts, uh, where he reunites with uh, uh, my great-grandmother-to-be, um, and uh, they uh, marry in uh, November 1865 in Nantucket. He kept a diary. Uh, between uh, of his uh, of his entire service in the United States Navy for Uncle Samuel, as he called uh, <laughs> our Uncle Sam, and uh, he um, uh, kept the diary on a very regular basis and described uh, battles that uh, uh, he his ship was in, uh, his uh, how he saw the war going generally. Uh, uh, what, how people in Europe reacted to them, uh, whether they were friendly or hostile, or, and uh, the news that he got of uh, Lee's surrender. He was in Spain uh, looking for Confederate ships in Spain uh, in 1865 when Lee surrendered. Well, he, uh, he came back to Massachusetts and... Uh, lived in a town immediately south of Boston called Dedham uh, between 1871 and the, the, uh, his time of death in 1923. And he uh, founded the local Episcopal church in uh, Dedham. That's how I happened to be an Episcopalian. And uh, he was the uh, leader, the commander of the uh, local um, uh, what they call GAR, um, uh, the um, uh, the uh, the uh, uh, veterans uh, group uh, that uh, 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 that was composed of veterans uh, who had uh, fought in the Civil War on the uh, Union side, and he was a contractor uh, employing people in uh, in uh, in Dedham and. Uh, 
he did the work. If you ever go to Dedham, you'll see the, the, the largest church that's visible for miles to come is the Roman Catholic Church, St. Mary's Roman Catholic Church. Well, when you go and take a look at that church, think of William B. Gould, because he did all the plastering on it. But um, his workmen fell asleep at a critical part of the plastering so that it, it, the work was not done properly. Um, and uh, uh, it was done in a way where he could have easily disguised it and uh, nobody would have been the wiser for 20 or 30 or 40 years afterwards when things began to fall apart. Well, he tore that all out and did it again, all over again, at great cost to himself. I think, you know, he took a terrible financial beating. Well, St. Mary's Roman Catholic Church, most of the people in Dedham are Roman Catholics. Uh, Germans or people of German or Irish descent, they remembered William P. Gould. And uh, I think from that time onward, uh, his uh, stature uh, as a leading citizen uh, in that part of the world was well established. What an amazing and heroic life, man. I mean, who, who's who's the furthest back relative that you spoke with about him? Like a like well, a grandparent or a great uncle or great aunt, somebody who uh, knew him? Well, the, well see, I knew uh, his sons and daughters. Yeah. I, I knew his sons and daughters as a child. Uh, the last of his sons and daughters, the last of his sons did not, die until I was well into my 20s. Um, but amazingly, I was not aware of uh, this man at that point. We, I didn't speak to them of him. My, my mother told me subsequently that my father had spoken with one of the uh, great uncles uh, uh, about him and uh, uh, it's this great uncle who followed my great grandfather in his trade, the trade of uh, plastering and masonry, who gave his property when he died to my father. And my father drives up to Dedham and uh, goes up into the attic and finds this diary in the attic in 1958. Until that time, we didn't know that that diary existed, and uh, it was the hope of my father and myself to uh, bring this out together, and we kept postponing it. Uh, at the time we began, there were still people, not alive, not who were there at the time of my great-grandfather, but they were one generation removed. They knew people, you know, who knew people from that period of time. We we were still within striking distance. Well, we we missed that opportunity. And uh, so that uh, most of this book is composed of uh, the anecdotes that I remember my father telling me when I was a kid uh, about him and, uh, and the research that uh, I did through uh, uh, countless uh, archives uh, and... Uh, uh, papers in various parts of the country. Boy, so remarkable, man. We're all indebted to you for the, for this work. Um, well, bringing it back to the local times here, uh, just to finish up, um, you were kind of hinting 
and do you see you you see a possible lockout after this current labor agreement after what is it December of 21 is when the current CBA expires and yes. going into 22 you you think there could be a lockout I think there very well could be because uh here's what's happened uh of course ho hockey uh, uh which you know is a bit off the beaten track for a lot of us uh it's unusual in many respects uh first tried this shortly after the turn of the century uh but um uh and basketball tried it a couple of times football was in in a way um a turning point i think in 2011 when the football owners really won uh uh with the union in 2011 because um they discovered that um the you know the, well, we all we all know this so this is a dynamic in the current baseball negotiations the players want to play and uh you know that's why it, it would just be so unspeakable for the baseball players to miss this entire year altogether well the same for the football players in 2011 they had to come to the table and they had no pressure uh on the owners because the owners said you know we make our money later it's a very effective tactic and to make a long story short the football players union was unsuccessful in devising a number of legal strategies to, to counter this. Um, uh, and I think uh, the baseball owners uh, uh, are taking note of this and um, uh, are, are saying to themselves, we're not going to wait until the summer of 2022 for the baseball players to strike and to squeeze us when uh, they know that the postseason is when we have the greatest incentive to settle. We'll squeeze them when they have the greatest incentive to settle uh, before, when the kids, the young kids who are just getting their start and who are have a chance to play their first or second year uh, uh, to really uh, be in the big show for the, for the first time. These kids want to play desperately, and uh, we're in no hurry at that particular time of the year. And I think that the, the availability of the lockout as a weapon uh, has, of course, changed the dynamics of a lot of labor management relations, but particularly labor, ma labor management relations in sports. And uh, I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised uh, if this wasn't what uh, the baseball owners have up their sleeve and I think the union is busily at work figuring how it can counter this. It's going to be it, it, the, the recent experiences, the lessons that we have from the past few years in sports are not good from the union perspective when it comes to uh, the effectiveness of economic pressure. Well, what would be the main issue owners would lock them out? Would it is it is it more about revenue sharing uh, or, or think, what? Well, I think it's it's uh, the, the, it's, the salary cap. I think it's more about it's some getting a getting some control over a greater control over 
over salaries, uh, maybe a, uh, um, I mean, goodness, the, the luxury tax, actually the, the luxury tax in the other sports has become more flexible than uh, baseball is right now. But I think that it may be that they would want uh, either a, uh, a more straightforward kind of cap as they wanted in the mid-90s mm-hmm. or a toughening of the uh, luxury tax. There are any variety of mechanisms that they can use. We saw this with what they got in the uh, uh, most recent uh, uh, agreement with regard to uh, the last two agreements with regard to qualifying offers. Mm-hmm. Uh, to uh, guys who want to become free agents. Well, that that really froze a lot of people in place because, uh, you know, you, you don't want to... The amateur draft is terribly... has become more important as the year is going, going on. You don't want to give up valuable uh, spots in, uh, in the amateur draft uh, in exchange for a free agent uh, who may last only a few years. Um, I mean, there are any number of mechanisms that uh, uh, that the owners could use uh, so as to make uh, free agency less effective uh, uh, for the for the players. I think ultimately that's the kind of thing that it's going to be about once again. And I think the the players really are in this instance trying to. They're, they're the people who are, are going to try to roll back uh, some of the gains that the owners have made uh, in recent years, uh, particularly this qualifying offer uh, mechanism and, and uh, some of the constraints that have been placed upon uh, the amount of money that can be uh, given to uh, players who are who are drafted. Well, buckle up, folks. <laughs> yeah. It's not think, over. Uh, think, re- real quick. Yes. Before we sign off here, you've written 10 books. You're working on an 11th. Real quick, might you suggest what this next one is about? Well, this book is uh, about, uh, John, where labor is going, organized labor is going, and uh, um, how it can, um, if it can at all, revive itself. uh, the, the the role that the law can play, the role that uh, external circumstances, uh, uh, such as uh, uh, the one that we're, uh, 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 the pandemic uh, can play, uh, we're going through right now, and also what labor can do uh, internally in terms of uh, uh, itself uh, using its own dues monies to uh, more effectively to organize the unorganized, how that can uh, change uh, prospects for labor. That's all great stuff, Bill. And a thousand thank yous to you, man. You you put uh, great perspective on baseball labor and baseball itself in your wonderful life and much appreciated. Thank you. Thanks, John, very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Giant Splash, the second of two parts with Bill Gould. And stay tuned for more Giant Splash podcasts as Henry Shulman and I continue to talk baseball into the summer. The Giant Splash is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Podcast producers are King Kaufman and Alan Johnson. The theme song, Batter Up, was written and performed by Lauren Gold and Ray Eastless. 
Support The Splash and all of our great journalism by signing up for a Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.